Good morning, church. My name is Neil. I'm one of the pastors here. It's great to see you this morning. I just want to say how overjoyed Shelly and I are that my middle son, Joel, has slipped into the service. And uh, stand up, Joel. I'm going to embarrass him. And I want to introduce you to his girlfriend, Jesse, who's with him. Jesse, stand up. Good to have you. Great. They have a couple days in Knoxville on fall break, and uh, I will pay dearly for having embarrassed him. I heard, uh, I don't know, uh, everybody who gave me an envelope, I appreciate it. My birthday's not for three months. People are handing me envelopes, and I'm going, what? But apparently I found out what it is, but thank you. Uh, did you get some too, Mark? Yeah. It's his birthday too, apparently. I heard the women had an awesome time yesterday in our women's brunch and uh, meeting with uh, Kathy Oaks. And Kathy's exciting and appreciate all the women who labored to put that on. And uh, it was the women were greatly encouraged. Well, if you've been here over the months, you know that at the, in the beginning of the summer, I was in a series on the book of First Peter called Transforming Grace. And we took a necessary detour for two or three months. Uh, we actually started earlier than the summer. We took a detour on a series called New Wineskins, which we felt was important over the summer to prepare us for our Vision Sunday and for the changes that are happening at Trinity, well, I have good news. We are now coming back this morning to the book of First Peter and transforming grace. And we're going to finish First Peter, Lord willing, before the end of the year. And what a way to come back. Uh, because I've come back this morning to the hardest passage, not only in Peter, but arguably the most difficult, obscure, Weird passage in the entire Bible. Now I want to go on record. I want to be honest. There are weird passages in the Bible. Like being baptized for the dead in 1 Corinthians 15. What in the world does that mean? But anyway, I'm not here this morning to talk about weird passages because actually, though this passage is challenging, the ultimate message of this, mes of this passage is so encouraging. And here it is. There is not a demon an angel, a principality or power that is not now subject to the Lord Jesus Christ, the ultimate victor. And that's what I want to, as we weave through this passage, that's what I want to convey this morning. Whatever you're going through, whoever you are, regardless of what you are suffering, and many of us are, our God reigns. He is Lord of all, and he demonstrated that through his glorious resurrection. Turn with me to the book of First Peter. I have the text this morning. There's no uh, PowerPoint, but I want to read the text to you. First Peter 3, verse 18. Would you mind standing before the Lord as we read Holy Scripture this morning? This is God's word. Listen to it. Verse 18. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit in which he went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison because they formerly did not obey when God's patience waited in the days of Noah while the ark was being prepared, in which a few, that is eight persons, were brought safely through water. 
Verse 21, baptism, which corresponds to this, now saves you. Not as a removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience. Through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God with angels, authorities, and powers having been subjected to him. Father, we celebrate this morning that your son has conquered all, that you have raised him up from the dead, and he now sits sits with you at the right hand of majesty. And this is our ultimate encouragement in our suffering. So grant this morning that the gospel of the declaration of Jesus' victory might encourage, succor, strengthen those who are suffering and those who are tempted. In Jesus' name I ask. And everyone said, Amen. Wonder how many of you know that based on this passage and others, there are many well-known television evangelists, radio preachers, and Christian teachers today who teach that Jesus' death on the cross was not in itself sufficient in providing atonement for our sins. According to these teachers, in order for Jesus to atone for sin, He had to not only die on the cross and suffer in His passion, but He also had to suffer torment by Satan and his cohorts in hell for three days and three nights. And while in hell, they teach, Satan's full anger and wrath was poured out on the Son of God. You might be here this morning and believe that. You might have believed it before and no longer believe it. If you are here and believe it, I hope with every ounce of strength in my body to talk you out of it this morning. And by the way, they are not alone. Many in church history over the centuries have taught and believed that. In fact, in a rendition of the Apostles' Creed, which interestingly is the rendition, this was added in 400 AD. It was not in the original Apostles' Creed, but in this version of the Apostles' Creed, it says, quote, he was crucified, died, and was buried, and he descended into hell. And by the way, some of the modern evangelists who teach this today, and they are prevalent, actually teach that he not only suffered in hell for three days, but he himself was then filled with the Holy Spirit and was born again. To quote one evangelist, quote, Jesus died on the cross, descended into hell for three days to get beat up on by Satan, and then was filled with the Holy Spirit and was born again. One of the main scriptures, as I started at the beginning to tell you, that they use to substantiate this is 1 Peter 3.19. Now I want to assure you that the idea that Jesus had to go to hell and suffered, I understand why they believe it, because there are texts that might appear to be teaching that, but I want to assure you that this text that we're dealing with this morning, nor any other text, teaches that Jesus went to hell and suffered in hell there for our sins. And to teach that, I believe, is to negate the work of the cross. 
on the cross, our precious Lord made it clear in His declaration, it is finished. He didn't mean it's partially finished and now He has to go to hell and be tormented. It is finished was the declaration. And by the way, Jesus didn't say He was going to hell. He turned to the thief on the cross and said, today, this day, you will be with Me in paradise. So nowhere does the Word of God teach that Jesus of Nazareth, our precious Lord, suffered and died and went to hell. Now having said that, that doesn't mean this is an easy passage. Admittedly, we're going to talk this morning about a passage of Scripture that is probably the most obscure passage in the Word of God. Martin Luther, whom I respect as a commentator, and who wrote a commentary on all of the New Testament, said this, I'm not quoting, but I'm paraphrasing, I have no idea what Peter means. And I read that, and that was really encouraging to me. Because if Luther doesn't know, I don't know. And by... Counting, I found this on the World Wide Web, there are 180 different ideas about what is being taught here. Correction, when I'm done, 181. <laughs> so how do we handle a text that is obviously obscure, that has fostered so many different ideas over the century? Century, And, you know, it's kind of funny. I found something funny in this. Peter, in his second letter, says something about Paul. Do you remember? In chapter 3, Peter comments on Paul. And here's what he says. You know, uh, and I, this is a paraphrase. You know, Paul writes some things that are difficult to understand. And then Peter wrote this. And I could see Paul reading Peter in this text and saying, I wrote difficult things. Is that the pot calling the kettle black? So one thing I will not do in this message, I cannot do it, because I cannot say with certainty either what Peter is saying, but I will not be dogmatic. But aside from the difficulty of the particular statement we will look at in verse 19, let's pull back and not lose the forest from the trees. This passage we read was penned by Peter in order to be amazingly encouraging to people who were suffering for their faith. Remember in the paragraph before, and this goes back to, I think we've been out of Peter for four months. Peter said that there are times when it is the will of God for people to suffer for the gospel. That's incredible to say. And, you know, in, in, in a couple of weeks on the 3rd of November, we're going to show a short video and be praying for the persecuted church. There are still men and women in the earth who are persecuted for the faith. But Peter said to them, don't worry, no one can harm you if you are zealous to do good. But then he said, but even if they do try to harm you, don't be afraid, don't be troubled, but sanctify or honor Christ as holy in your hearts and always be prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you a reason for the hope 
that is in you. And he said, don't only be prepared to make a defense by your words. Certainly you should do that. But by your behavior. One thing he says is no way should you ever suffer. For doing evil, but for doing good. And then Peter does what he did back in chapter 2 when he was encouraging suffering people. Remember the servants who were to be subjected to unreasonable masters. And he pulled a statement about the Lord Jesus and says, let him be your model in suffering. Remember how he said it. To this you have been called. Because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example that you should follow in his steps. He does the same thing here. He now cites Jesus as their model for suffering. And he says in verse 18, Christ also, just as you're suffering, don't forget, Christ suffered once for sins. I love that emphasis once because it reflects a message of the book of Hebrews. He suffered once for all. Peter here is reminding us of what the writer of Hebrews says about the sacrifice of Jesus. If you read Hebrews, and I know this as a Jew, you have the same sacrifices over and over every year. The high priest couldn't go on the day of atonement into the holiest of all, offer the prescribed sacrifices, and never have to do it again. Every year, Hebrews says, there was a fresh reminder of sins, and it was done annually because the blood of bulls and goats cannot take away sin. But this word emerges in Hebrews, and it emerges here in 1 Peter 3.18. He suffered also for sins once, once for sins, never to be repeated, powerfully effective, To do its job. The atonement doesn't make salvation possible. The atonement isn't, you got to add something to it. It is finished means everything and anything that men and women will ever need to be reconciled by God to God is done. Finished. And look at the result. He says, Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous. I love this that he might bring us to God. By the way, when you read that, the wording indicates that it doesn't just make it possible to be brought to God. The atonement actually brings a people to God. There's an idea here that is so important. Why did we have to be brought to God? Why couldn't we just go to him? One commentator likened this to a great ancient oriental king. Nebuchadnezzar or Artaxerxes or one of those kings in in the books of Nehemiah and Ezra. You could never, remember when Esther had to take her life in her hands to go to the king and her uncle said, go, it's the only hope. And she said, no one can come into the king's presence unless you are bidden to come. And she said, I will do it. I'll take my life in my hands. If I perish, I perish. And of course, she didn't perish. The king held out the golden scepter and said, come. No one could rush 
into the presence of a great king. You had to be brought by someone of nobility. And guess what? The atonement is Jesus bringing you to God through His cross work. That's the idea. You can't come into the presence of the great king without mediation, without an atonement, without someone who bridges the gap. And He brings you. You have a right. I have a right to be at the throne this morning because of Jesus. If you're trying to come into the presence of the great king because you pray enough, you read enough, you witness enough, you worship enough, it's folly. Quit it. Quit it as a way of achievement. Don't quit it as a way of, you should do it because you love him. But it is not what gets you in. Jesus gets you in. Remember how Romans chapter 5 says it? Through him we have obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand. Access. I came this morning. Early this morning, I came into the presence of the great king and I was bidden and welcomed by Jesus. Now, how did Jesus accomplish this great work? Peter goes on to say he was put to death in the flesh in verse 18, but made alive in the spirit. Some commentators have falsely believed that Peter is making a contrast between the two natures of Christ, his fleshly nature or his human nature and his divine nature. But I think the NIV translation got it right because it says it this way. He was put to death in the body but alive, made alive by the Spirit, capital S. It seems that Peter is talking about his earthly death where the man Jesus suffered and died on the cross and his glorious resurrection where the Father by the Spirit raised him from the dead. In fact, Romans 8.11 mentions the Holy Spirit as being involved in the resurrection of Jesus. If he was talking about Christ's soul, it wouldn't have said he was made alive. So here's what Peter is saying. By his death, Christ won life for his own. His resurrection brings triumph after suffering, a triumph that is the hope of suffering Christians. Because Jesus' death, folks, was not uh, a defeat, but the once for all sacrifice that atoned for sin. And it was proven to be just that by God raising his son from the dead and saying, it's right. It's powerful. It works. Here's the confirmation. My son's alive. But then Peter tells us what happens after Possibly after the resurrection, though I am vacillating exactly when it happens. This is the text where, Pete, where Luther said, I have no idea what it's talking about. And I want to go on record this morning and echo Brother Martin. I have no idea what it's talking about. But I'm not going to skip it. I'm not going to skip it for two reasons. I want to teach you a principle that is called, this is not a tongue, so no one can get an interpretation. Uh, the principle of perspicuity. Fancy word, and here's what it means. There are clear passages in the Word of God 
and there are less clear passages in the Word of God. How many have found very clear passages? Let me see how good interpreters you are. How many understand what this means? Jesus wept. Okay. I know you've been struggling with that for many years. I think you've come to understand what it means. That's clear. How many clearly believe from your study of Scripture that Jesus was bodily raised from the dead? That's clear. It's not, although early church Gnostics tried to say it's not clear, it's very clear, it's crystal clear. But then there are passages in Scripture like this that nobody really understands and nobody gets. Perspicuity is don't form doctrine on the less clear passages. Interpret the less clear passages in the light of the more clear passages. And Kelly and David and the other guys in, in the tech class on studying your Bible have probably talked about this principle. That's what cults do, by the way. They take an obscure passage like, you know, uh, the Mormons do on being baptized for the dead. And they, they come up with a fancy whole doctrine based on one obscure text. There's another principle, though, that really is needed here. It's called Humility. <laughs> the doctrine of humility. It, it allows me and others to stand before a text like this and be honest and admit, I don't really know what I believe. But there's a scripture that's helpful. The secret things belong to the Lord. If I get this wrong, nothing happens in my salvation. My doctrine isn't, isn't in trouble because the the creeds of the faith that are essential to believe, I believe. So I'm not in trouble if I don't fully understand this because the secret things belong to the Lord, but the things that are revealed are for us and our children. So in that spirit, I come into this. Here's what Peter's saying. Let's set it up. But this has importance, as I hope to demonstrate to you. Peter's saying that Jesus went to spirits the spirits in prison who were formerly disobedient in the days of Noah while the ark was being prepared. That's essentially what he's saying. And it raises a number of questions. Obviously, if you're studying a Bible passage like this, you have to ask questions like, who in the world are these spirits? And where did Jesus go to preach to them? And even worse, why did he preach to them? All of these questions. And basically, in 2,000 years of trying to grapple with this, three positions have emerged. I'll tell you which one I'm leaning towards, and I'll give you all three, and you figure it out. And if you figure it out, uh, call me tonight. Uh, number one position, some believe that the pre-incarnate Christ Jesus, before he was born of a virgin, was pre-incarnate, that he went and, and th that Noah, that Christ, the pre-incarnate Christ, was preaching to Noah's world through the ministry of Noah. Famous people believe that. St. Augustine, the great church father of the fourth century, believed that. Or fifth century. Those spirits, he said, were now in hell, and uh, but they were the spirits of people 
living during the preparation time of the flood, 120 years, Noah's preached, and Jesus himself was preaching through Noah to those people. The problem with this view is it says he went somewhere. And it doesn't sound good to say, well, he actually didn't go somewhere. He was in Noah, and Noah was preaching, and Jesus was preaching to the Noahic world through him. Another problem is the word spirits. Typically, if it doesn't have an adjective, the term spirits relates to angelic beings more than humans, although there is an exception in Hebrews where it talks about the spirits of just men made perfect. So it could be human, but most of the time, spirits by itself indicates angelic beings. Let's take a vote. How many of you vote for... Never mind. The second view, and this is very popular, and people I respect hold this view. The resurrected Christ preached, after his resurrection, he preached to fallen angels who left their former estate and married women and had a race of giants. This is uh, mentioned in Genesis 6, where some believe angels came down to earth, married women, you gals who say, my husband's an angel, they could really say that and mean it with conviction. And they married uh, 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 women, uh, human women, and they had an offspring of giants. This view would have in its favor two things. Second Peter mentions, and Jude mentions, angels being held in prison uh, by chains. So that's in this favor, who did not keep their former estate. Also, the idea that Jesus has conquered every cosmic force would be uh, an important point for these people who are being persecuted and suffers. But it brings up all kinds of difficulties with Genesis 6. I do not believe that Genesis 6 is talking about angels cohabiting with women for a number of reasons I'm not going to go into this morning. So those who have a problem with that idea in Genesis 6 have a problem. And there's, uh, by the way, there's there's branches of this second one that go into all directions, time won't allow me. Here's the third view. The crucified Jesus descended to the place of the dead between his death and resurrection and announced his victory. I am presently more comfortable with this view than the other two, with modification. We might ask this morning, what happened to the Lord Jesus in the three days between his death and his resurrection? Now, the difficulty with this passage is the text lends itself to an action that happened after his resurrection, but it's inferred, it's not clear, and that therefore this view could have uh, meaning. That is, Jesus didn't descend to hell and be tortured, but he did go down to Hades. Now, you remember that Hades is not hell. Hades, and I'm not talking about the country of Haiti, Hades is the place of departed spirits. How many of you remember in the story of Lazarus and the rich man, two men are in Hades. One is in paradise, the beggar, 
And he's enjoying the bliss of being in Abraham's bosom. And the other is in flames. Now, this is a place of torment, but it's not hell yet. How do I know that's not hell? Because after the second coming, we're told in Revelation that death and Hades will be cast into the lake of fire. That hasn't happened yet. Hades is the place of departed spirits. And what Jesus did is he came there to these people, and this view would would believe that spirits there is human spirits. And he came to Hades to carry the righteous to heaven. This would be borne out by Ephesians 4 that says after his resurrection, uh, after his death, he led a host of captives. Ephesians chapter 4, he led a host of captives. They were captive to Hades, the Old Testament saints, and Jesus, after his death, went there to carry them to heaven. So that if you die this morning, you will be absent from the body, but you will be present with the Lord, with Him in heaven, awaiting the resurrection. He also would have proclaimed His victory to those who perished in the flood. Now, when he says he preached, the text actually says he preached to the spirits in prison. This is alarming. Because the term preach could be made to infer that Jesus was giving people who died a second chance. Though the word is preached and it is used that way in other portions of the New Testament, The idea here, I believe, is not that he was offering a second chance because the rest of Scripture would refute that men who die and women who die get a second chance. It is appointed unto men once to die and then the judgment. So the idea that you have a second chance is not biblical. And Jesus isn't offering those who are were disobedient a second chance, but he was proclaiming that their judgment was just and he has conquered death. And now those who are righteous, who believed in him will be with him forever. Now the question is, and that's the view I'm more comfortable with right now. I could come back in 10 years and you will find that I have switched because obscure passages are obscure passages. And I'm sure there's people in this room that are finding trouble with this view. But man, there's trouble with all three. But one question we should ask, why does Peter specifically talk about the disobedient spirits in the days of Noah? For those of you who have forgotten, Noah didn't just build a boat. He is called a preacher of righteousness. And for 120 years, he preached with no results. Why does Peter say Jesus went to proclaim to the spirits who were disobedient in Noah's day? Why them? I think Peter is trying to say something that we may not pick up, and I want to help you to pick it up. I think he's saying 
that there is a parallel between what happened to Noah and his day and what was happening to the believers in Peter's day. Here are four parallels between Noah's day and Peter's day. That's why I think he's bringing Noah in. Number one, only a few were being saved in Noah's day. Unfortunately, eight people, his family. And in Peter's day, God was saving a few, a remnant. There was not a worldwide revival. There was a few who were being saved. Number two, Noah was mocked and ridiculed by his generation. That's what was happening to these believers. Number three, Noah preached to his generation. The Christians were preaching to their generation. But the fourth reason is where Peter really focuses. And it is Noah and his family were saved by water. Noah and his family were saved by water, and so were the Christians in Peter's day, and so were you and I. I will explain that. Do not panic. Now when Peter says, in verse 21, baptism which corresponds to this. Corresponds to what? Noah, the flood, and the salvation of Noah in the ark and his family. When Peter says, baptism which now saves you, he is not, I repeat, he is not teaching baptismal regeneration. And there are some in the church who teach that. Well, it's arguable if they're the church, but they're... Some of you maybe grew up being told that if you get dunked as a baby, that's regeneration, that's being born again. No, that's getting wet. The water of baptism has no regenerative power. Some believe it does. Water alone in a ritual called baptism will not save you. Without repentance, without faith in the gospel, baptism is meaningless. That's why we spend time every month before we baptize candidates to ensure that they have faith and believe the gospel. So the answer to the question, does baptism save us, is no. If you mean, if I just go in water without faith, it will do something, it will not. But does baptism save you? Yes, if you mean that it is necessary to be fully delivered from the power of sin. Jesus said, he that believes and is baptized. And when Peter was asked on the day of Pentecost, what must we do to be saved? Brethren, what shall we do? They, he said, repeat. Just say these nine words. I'm sorry, repent, be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. We've been so afraid in reaction to baptismal regeneration, we've been so afraid, we've been afraid to say that baptism is not just an empty ritual, it is powerful, it is uh, necessary for salvation, if you mean by salvation. Now, there's a thief on the cross that's about to be saved. 
in, without being water baptized. And we use that as an example often. And I agree. Someone on their deathbed could truly repent, receive the gospel and be saved and not be baptized. I believe they'll go to heaven. Don't come up to me and say, do you mean they won't go to heaven? No, I don't. But saved, the term saved, folks, does not just mean I got my ticket to heaven. That's the problem. We in the evangelical world have been stuck on heaven as what saved. Saved means that I am being delivered from the penalty. I was in justification. And now through sanctification, I'm being delivered from the power of sin. That's what saved means. I can prove that in scripture. So baptism is essential to that process. Are you breathing? (laughs) So if we paraphrase what Peter's saying, he's saying this. Baptism now saves you, but not the outward physical ceremony, but the inward spiritual reality that baptism represents. And Peter tells us how it saves us. He says it's the basis for an appeal to God. Verse 21. An appeal to God for a good conscience. I read that and I thought, you know how precious a good conscience is? How many of you always live with a conscience that's bothered? With a low-grade fever guilt that we walk around with? The greatest gift God could give you and give me is a good conscience. And baptism provides an appeal, Peter says, to God for a good conscience. The word appeal means demand, inquiry, interrogation. It's to be questioned. Many believe Peter is actually referring to a baptismal candidate answering questions as he or she was in the baptism tank or in the river. They were asked questions before they were baptized. Baptism appeals to God for a good conscience. It is the answer to a problem of a conscience that is either defiled or is overactive. And Peter says, the death of Jesus and his resurrection gives us the basis for an appeal to God for a good conscience. Now, the question, the jury's out. I found commentators who believe appeal there is you're asking God for a good conscience. That is the Uh, 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 objective role and then others said it is the basis by which we actually experience a good conscience and I believe the text favors that when we believe the gospel and we believe that every sin we've ever committed past present future is dealt with by the blood of Jesus we and then God proved its efficacy, its power, its effectiveness by raising his son from the dead. Our consciences can be clear. It works. I'm free. I would quote the end of Romans 4 to prove that where Paul says Jesus was delivered up 
for our transgressions and raised for our justification. And that's what Peter says, an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Folks, he's alive. You're free. You don't have to walk around with a conscience that is bothered. Now, you might have to confess sin as God brings it to your mind and your conscience. But you don't have to walk around with a low-grade guilt. That's been my deal. I've learned to confess sins to God that are obvious, but I walked around for so many years with a low-grade guilt. And I was reading the other day, and I came across a passage that absolutely blew my mind in a little tract that Pastor Timothy Keller wrote uh, on the blessedness of self-forgetfulness. And here's the passage, Paul talking about himself, and they were sitting in judgment. You know, sometimes we have that low-grade conscious guilt because we know there are people who don't like us or they're talking about us or I'm being rejected or whatever. And here's what Paul says. With me, it is a very small thing that I should be judged by you or any human court. I do not even judge myself. For I am not aware of anything against myself, but I am not thereby acquitted It's the Lord who judges me. This is scary, folks. Paul says, I don't really care what you think about me. I'm free from that. The truth be told, he says, I don't even care what I think about me. This man knew justifying grace. I don't even sit in judgment of myself. I got a glimpse when I read that little track how freeing life would be if I not only didn't care what people thought of me, I don't even care what I think of me. Because the freedom is somebody say, well, I heard so-and-so's talking and saying this about you and say, send them a message, please. They don't know the half of it. They think I'm bad. They have no clue. I'm far worse than they could ever imagine. But I'm free. I'm free. From my own condemnation, from yours. It's not an experience you need to have. It comes from believing the gospel. And Peter says, baptism, when we put you under the water, your sins are buried. And we bring you up out of the water. You're a new person. You're a new man. You're a new woman. You're free. Your conscience can enjoy God. Just try living in the freedom of a conscience, free of offense with God and man. And when God shows you, you have offended him. There's an easy fix. Guess what? You don't, you're not on probation for a year. You're free. Finally. Paul ends, Peter, excuse me, ends this passage with a powerful statement of the victory of Jesus over angels, powers, demons, principalities. They are all subject to your Lord. 
through the resurrection of Jesus Christ who has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God with angels, authority, powers, being, having been subjected to him. Why are we suffering? Why is Rome crushing us? Looks that way, doesn't it? Looks like Caesar's in control. Looks like America's going down the tubes right now. And I know that God is really worried because he just didn't figure this was going to happen. I don't think he knew about it. I don't think, I think he's shocked. I think the, the, the government shutdown caught him by surprise. He's worried. He's flurried. He's hurried. He doesn't know what to do. Folks, our Lord is seated at the right hand of God. There is one sovereign in this world. One. One. You can't say Jesus is Lord and be a Persian dualist, which is the belief that there's two gods running the universe, fighting each other, God and the devil. They are not fighting. It is not. It is true that Satan resists, but he's God's devil and God knows the end. And Jesus, we're in the mop up job. Jesus is Lord. We win. The next passage we take up next week deals with suffering as well. And isn't it neat? In between two passages in which Christians are told, first they're told that they might suffer when they preach the gospel, and next week we're told we're going to suffer if we want to be holy in this world. You cannot not suffer if you're pursuing holiness. But right in the middle, he brings this paragraph of the ultimate victory of Jesus. He died. He descended to Hades. He declared his victory over all. He rose from the dead. Father ascended him to the right hand. So whatever you're going through, you can deal with it. There's grace available because Jesus is our Lord. Stand to your feet and worship. Lift your hands to God and let's worship.